it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome back to the Situation in the Story podcast, where you can peer into what happens behind the page as I pick authors' brains about their experiences, their process, and their purpose. I'm your host, Chris Moore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. I sat down with Denver-based poet Ellie Swenson, who recently published her first collection of poetry via Punch Drunk Press. She's a queer southern expat and earned her MFA from Naropa University in 2015. She's the founder and co-director of Boulder Writers Warehouse, a mobile writers community resource. Hi. Hello. <laughs> How are you, Ellie Swenson? I am doing all right, Chris Moore. <laughs> Why do you write? Why do I write? I write because I can and because I can't not. (laughs) That first answer, I write because I can, potentially sounds a little bit uh, egotistical, but for me it's more about privilege um, of like, I have that skill set. I've had access to the education and the opportunities that have allowed me to develop that skill set. So I feel like there is an obligation for me to flex it. Um, in terms of, I mean, I've, I've been writing basically for as long as I can remember. I can't stop doing it. So there's also that compulsion side <laughs> of the whole mess. Yeah. <laughs> How old are you? Uh, 30. Okay. One, 31? 30. 31. 31. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. Yeah, that happened just, uh, January 2nd. My bad. Oh, that's my mother's birthday. Hey, <laughs> Um... So you said you have the education and the background. Where'd you go to school? Mm-hmm. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. I was in the public education system through eighth grade. And then I went to a private high school um, called the Lovett School in Atlanta, um, which is actually where I got, I was privileged enough to get a lot of attention around my writing and had some teachers that really believed in it. Um, and from there, I went to Denison University in Ohio. And again, Uh, I was very privileged and blessed to have really incredible professors that honed in on my writing and supported that journey for me and gave me opportunities to read, which is incredibly important to me. The performance aspect of my poems is huge. And so people that believed in that and gave me those opportunities um, really changed my life. And then um, from there, I came out to Colorado and did my master's of fine art at Naropa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good old Naropa. Yep, that. <laughs> my friend slash neighbor in the building is doing, like, 
a dance class over there. And yeah. She said yesterday. She said last night it was the most Naropa thing she's ever been to. Wait, can you describe it for me? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, they're, lo- they're, I love when people say that because I, I, I have an image in my head and I would really love to know if it's right. It's, they're telling stories through dance, mm-hmm. but they get certain kind of rules they have to follow. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know too much. I'll have to ask her again. Okay. Is but there red thread involved? There might be. <laughs> Excellent. I'm sure there's something of that nature mm-hmm. involved. Mm-hmm. So what did you think of Naropa? Oh, dang. All right. I'm going there. You are. You went in there. Do you know Andrea Rexilius? I do. Yes. Okay. Did you hear her poem about Kerouac and the beats? No. It was, it's amazing. That's incredibly important. No, I I know. I mean, Andrea was um, my advisor, was my thesis advisor. So my, the year that I graduated was her last year there. Yeah. And there was a lot of stuff that went down (laughs) on that campus that year. I actually, I still have um, some sadness and borderline anger around this that she couldn't be there. But um, I mean, she was my thesis advisor, was incredibly influential to me for a whole bunch of reasons. But because of different stuff going on on campus at that time, she couldn't be at the senior reading or at graduation. And so I received my yellow rose after the student reading from another professor who had nothing to do with my thesis or any of my work or my process. That's icky. Yeah, it was it was not great. Um, So, yes, I know, Andrea, I have a great deal of appreciation for that woman. Shoot, well, she's the program coordinator at the mile high now. yeah yeah there was like the mass exodus yeah well i just graduated from mile high in a few weeks ago congratulations thank you excellent but she was at a reading for inverted syntax which is Mm -hmm. mile high's new Mm -hmm. journal and she had i think she'll correct me later if i'm wrong i think it's a new poem it's not published or anything but she read it and and it was just kind of you know Pushing back against the whole patriarchy of the beat generation. It was... Rightfully so. It was a good one. Yep. I was just raging about that yesterday, actually. You gotta ask her about that poem. I will. Yeah, it's really good. I will. But then... What was it? The intro to your book? Mm Mm-hmm. Somebody... I don't know. Talked about Barbara Dilly? What? (laughs) I lived in her house. No, no, no. Oh, yeah, 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 yes, yes. <laughs> no, but no. The first paragraph where I'll never forget when at a house party, mm-hmm. you know, they're talking about uh-huh. Ginsburg and you just were like... I was like, mm, no. like cut that right now. Yeah, there is... Um, so what Chris is referring to, the intro of my book, which is written by Emily Duffy, uh, tells a story at a, at a house party we were both at. There was this white man who found out we were writers and turned to Emily and said, well, are you Ginsburg or Kerouac? Mm-hmm. And I lost my damn mind, y'all. Because I, I heard that question and I wasn't directly involved in the in the conversation. I heard that and I kind of like saw Emily's body language freeze up a little bit. And I, for whatever reason, you know, there are those moments where you hear a question like that and you kind of do a self-inventory of mm-hmm. like, do I have the faculties to engage with whatever right. the hell this is about to be? Um, and I, I did that body scan and the answer was yes at that time. And so I just, I leaned in and challenged his question was like, what the hell is that about? 
like why why do you assume like why are those the two names that come out of your mouth right. and and he talked about how you know well it's like the universal voice that speaks for everyone um which Jesus then I lost my mind again <laughs> it was a very quick succession of mind-blowing moments um and so I proceeded I, I talked to him for probably like two hours yeah that night um of just because it just everything that came out of his mouth I was like let's question that too man let's like get right? to the basis of this situation um and it ended up being a very productive conversation he listened to me I don't know how he's walking around in the world now I'm not yeah. sure if it changed much but if it, it felt good at that time to just not let that slide because I think sometimes you know we hear those things in public spaces and we process them as rather benign <clears throat> trespasses um and they're not because they accumulate and they yeah. excuse a lot of exactly really problematic behavior so you gotta cut it off there mm-hmm. <laughs> um i think the question was what did you think of naropa and then we got off track. oh yeah we, we did a little <laughs> swerve action um what did i think of naropa uh so the way that i talk about my time at naropa um i have a few different points <clears throat> one is i i am very grateful for my time there I very firmly believe that I would not be who I am and doing the work I'm doing if I had not been at that place at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I also have a lot of frustrations with that institution. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I talk about, it's interesting. I feel like Naropa is kind of founded on this logical fallacy of you know anti-institutional, anti-establishment, Buddhist contemplative community that is an accredited university. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like those, those things don't necessarily add up. You know, if you are going to be an accredited university, there are certain boxes you're going to have to check. There's going to be bureaucracy you have to yeah. have in place. There are going to be things you have to do that do not give you the freedom to be truly an anti-institutional right. anti-establishment you know um and and that's just on the on the surface level in terms of how the space is run then we get deep into you know the revisionist history of um yeah you know all of the sexual assault allegations the history of like we were talking about patriarchy of sexism of all of these the erasure of people that were part of that scene that were celebrated you know all, all yeah. that kind of jazz and and you also get into how um in some ways, that lineage is flexed for inspiration, and in other why, and in other ways, I feel like it's kind of weaponized <laughs> against the student body. How so? Because um, when I went in, it mm-hmm. was what two thousand nine, mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, well, you know, they're accredited, and they're trying to just, you know, check that those boxes so that right people like us can. You know, do the thing. Yeah, make meaningful work in the world. Yeah, um, but I see now. You know, I agree more with what you're saying. But how do you think it's weaponized? I sat in a lot of rooms um, that presented the old guard in a very godlike quality, um, and was talking about kind of the the old days and the way that that, Mm. those artist communities were run. And there was sometimes a silent subtext, sometimes an explicit statement of like, this is not the work that people are doing anymore, or y'all aren't doing this the way that we used to, or I don't see this particular energy, which was very frustrating as someone who was running reading series or like trying to organize or trying to do things. Um, 
And so I think that there is, um, there's actually a line in a poem by uh, Michael Malpedi, who used to live out here and also went to, to Naropa, which talks about how it's like, don't speak unless you're the next Ginsburg, unless you're the next Waldman, and next you know, yeah. kind of this litany of all of these names you are supposed to be in this uh, expectation of talk about, I talk a lot with my friends about greatness with a capital G, mm. right? It's like, and, and even that idea of why speak if not to change the world, beautiful sentiment in some ways, mm -hmm. but also it can be incredibly silencing because if you have any element of self-doubt, fuck yeah, then you're not going to speak. Exactly. Right? If, if, if that's the mentality of the room that you're in and you're not given the tools to realize that every single tiny bit of resistance is valid, right. you're not going to talk. You're going to lose faith in your voice. And I feel like there were a lot of people that went through that program that lost faith in their voice because they didn't add up to yeah. that particular lineage that was presented. I think my experience was a lot different because I wasn't in the... MFA program. Mm, I did mm -hmm, my undergrad. Mm -hmm. So I didn't... I mean, there was a... When I was towards it, maybe it was the year after I left, graduated, the president changed. Okay. Um, but that was really the only drama I encountered like, <laughs> yeah. in the undergrad program. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I've heard a lot. And I think... I think Andrea's poem is gesturing, gesturing towards that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I bet. Yikes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so. Um, yeah. And again, right. so and I, like I said, I, I, all of those criticisms totally valid. Very much how I feel. Um, and then I, just reiterating that, like I know, I would not be writing what I'm writing if I hadn't gone yeah. through that program. So I'm like super grateful for the people that I met there. I think it. I think it gathers a lot of interesting people. Oh yes, that, I would say that was the probably the best two years of my life as mm -hmm. far as community, um, friendship, creativity. Mm -hmm. I didn't go for writing. I was there for education and mm. environmental studies and peace studies and whatnot. But I don't think I'd be writing the way I am today right. if I hadn't gone. Yeah, and. That's totally the people, mm -hmm. <laughs> the people I met, but also my professors and mentors that weren't assholes. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's, I mean, no, no place is perfect 100% Exactly. Of the time. Yeah. And if I, I feel like if you actually have gratitude and love for a place, you got to do with the kindness of dragging it through the dirt sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> for real. <laughs> Be real about it. Mm hmm Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of education and whatnot, who are you? Oh man, <laughs> we can do. Can well, we, you can were we on break a path of what, a yeah, bit? we were on a path of like where you came from, right? You grew up in Georgia. Yeah, yeah. Born in Nashville, Tennessee. Raised in Atlanta, Georgia. Yeehaw! <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, I love Nashville. Mm hmm. Good Musically, place. good place. Especially, but mm -hmm. how the fuck was that growing up? in the <laughs> south like um let's just go there yeah no for sure for sure i uh, i am incredibly proud of the fact that i'm a southerner which is interesting uh because since i've lived in ohio i lived a summer in minnesota and then i've lived out in colorado it's like since i i've spent the majority of my adult life not being below the mason dixon line mm -hmm. um and so oftentimes when people find out that's where i'm from the responses uh, are very interesting. <laughs> there is usually an element of surprise, 
um, I've gotten people apologizing to me, hmm. which is like incredibly patronizing and kind of puts my hackles up a little bit. Well, you call yourself a Southern expat. Yes. Doesn't that imply getting out of there to some degree? Yes, it did. And it was necessary for me at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely don't want to erase that that's a part of who I am. Yeah. Um, and I'm now actually like just in the past few months at a place in my life that I'm looking to potentially move back to mm-hmm. that area because I feel like I, I have the tools to do so. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to feel like you can have the tools to navigate an entire region when you know you're 17 or 18 years old. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> I, I absolutely took that opportunity of college to leave and be somewhere else and, uh, and see how that would feel. Yeah. But growing up in the South, I mean, it's it's a series of contradictions, right? It's like I, I, I'm incredibly grateful for the lessons I learned in terms of hospitality, mm-hmm. specifically. Um, my understandings of Southern hospitality directly inform my progressive politics and my understanding of, like, queerness and how I hold that's space. That's cool. Like, that is a direct line for me, and that's always made that's sense. That's cool. <laughs> um, for sure. Yeah. For sure. And uh, so I have a lot of pride around that have i mean love of cooking which is more of like service level stuff but like that definitely came from the south learning how to cook for my mom and her sisters and like being in the kitchen and uh listening to motown washing dishes and stuff like that's part of the life that's in my body in a very real way being community oriented in general um also with the south i mean like complicated relationship with god and with faith for sure but again i was lucky enough that i grew up in my home church in atlanta i was trinity presbyterian and i grew up in a place that like really really valued questioning as a part of faith which that's unheard of i was gonna say is not the standard experience (laughs) yeah especially for a young queer growing up in the south like right heard i get it so Mm -hmm. like that that's again a huge mark of privilege that i know that i have so so the these like these big uh, I don't want to describe it like these these huge aspects of Southern culture that I have mm. in my body were gifted to me throughout my upbringing in a way that they could handle contradiction. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't, it makes sense to me to have that in my body and to like be proud of it and to be bringing it into my writing and the way that I live on the daily because um, I feel like I can make sense of those parts. They're not consistently at war in a way that I know they are for a lot of people. Yeah, that's badass. Yeah. I have a really good friend who grew up in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were at the time, like in high school, they were a debutante and all this. Oh yeah, (laughs) that's real. um, (laughs) real. And then moved out here for several years and recently just like returned to Mm -hmm. North Carolina. And it was kind of the same, sounds similar to what you're going through. Like now I have the tools to return to my roots and Mm -hmm. navigate it. And Mm -hmm. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, another thing that I want to say that I really, really value about the South that I've been craving is um, I talk a lot about thickness in terms of the South. Like when I describe it to people that haven't been there, don't understand it. It's like the air is thick. The food is yes. thick. The plants are thick. The accents are thick. There's yeah. like this weight to it. Yes. The hauntings are thick. Yeah. The wrongs that have happened are thick. All of that has a weight that I think no other place in the country really understands. And yeah. because of all of that weight there, you you can't... I mean, the concept of historical revisionism is so hard to maintain in the South because you have streets that are named for Confederate generals, right? right? So there, there is this, like, 
you have to confront the really problematic and painful aspects of our history in a way that I feel like conveniently in Colorado, a lot of people act like that doesn't exist. Right. Um, And it's all in the name of, you know, the new frontier. When I, um, there's a line in my book about this, but when I first moved to Colorado, I was told that people cared more about where you're going than where you've been Mm. as if historical revisionism was a selling point. Right. Right. And so like, there's, there's this awareness of past and like actually having to deal with things that I, uh, that I really miss. You make me want to go to the south. Yes, do it, <laughs> do it. I mean, he- we're, I mean, we're drinking spent, the chicory I, coffee. Yeah, that's true. I, I know spent, you got it in you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm from the east coast. I'm not that far away yeah. from the south. Mm-hmm. As far as oh man, talk about storytellers. Come on, east coast. No, I mean in the south. South, yeah, yeah, get, yeah. Get in there. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. I was actually looking at at North Carolina not long ago. Think about Asheville? Yeah. Yeah, man. All the queerdos going to Asheville. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's real. That's real. There's some really incredible art going on there, resistance movements going yes. on, because it is. It's like now that we have the ability to connect with each other mm-hmm. and we can combat these feelings of loneliness or isolation, which yeah. is normally why someone feels like they have to leave. It's a... Uh, possible yeah it's pretty cool mm-hmm. so i did i wanted to ask you about your parents yeah and what it was like growing up i don't mm-hmm. know i mm-hmm. like what's your story of queerness for lack of a better term dang <laughs> i mean my- this might be this might go over an hour <laughs> i was gonna say we got a lot to cover we got a lot going on my journey of queerness i mean looking back on my childhood it was pretty dang obvious i mean i <laughs> same same here but... I was just like busting out all over um, and God bless my mother for having to navigate that because there's a lot I mean I came out of the womb I've always been bi- like I've been big uh-huh. physically always yeah. I've been loud always I have a lot of opinions about stuff yeah. um, I mean it was a lot and to like raise that in the framework of specifically southern femininity is hard I mean that's like square peg round hole right there uh-huh trying to make that work and um i mean i was you know shaving my barbie dolls heads and switching the kin and barbie doll heads to like mess up their genders when Damn. I, like i was like dude i was way doing, ahead of me I you were like years ahead of me. my favorite song in elementary school was um was like the arrhythmics i was like uh, come on like annie lennox was yeah, like yeah, my yeah, idol yeah, yeah, like yeah. let it was there, y'all. It was yeah. there, um, for sure. And, I mean, I remember I had had a girlfriend in preschool. What? Like, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, That's but... adorable. It, it was really precious. But at the... Um, what's crazy about that particular story... Um, like, I remember the first time that we kissed each other, and we knew we had to hide. In preschool? We were four. What? Yeah. 
but we knew we had to hide and so yeah. we like hid behind this pine tree that was in the front yard of my house that like backed up to the front of the house so we if we were behind the tree no one could see us yeah and we also knew that one of us had to be a boy and one of us had to be a girl and right we, like, assigned that and then the other thing that's crazy is so like that happened and i carried that memory with me for a long time i tell that particular story because that's like a huge element of my queerness because i like had that memory of that thing when i was really young mm. carried that through elementary school through middle school the whole thing and i was like but did that really happen because then at some point you know you're like yeah. maybe i just made that up yep. i don't know and um you know blessing and curse of facebook i found that girl because <laughs> I, I was thinking about it and i was going to write about it in a class i was in in college i was like i wonder you gotta make sure if i can find this yeah. person and then i did and reached out and we had both convinced ourselves that it was like this prepubescent dream you know that like had not actually happened wow. and so like that i'd I feel like that story is a good way to kind of encapsulate the experience of queerness in the South because it was like I had the I had these experiences and I knew it was a truth in my body and even though I've always been pretty loud and have had a lack of shame there was still something in me that knew like not really right. like don't go full tilt with that yeah and there was definitely some you know subconscious suppression that was happening yeah yeah that might have been being queer in the 90s anywhere though <laughs> uh, yeah because i and i part of that poem that i wrote that was about that experience i think it, it was around the same time as matthew shepherd i want to say mm. and so you know putting these looking back and like putting these different landmarks together specifically in the 90s and early 2000s yeah. which is when we grew up is like there was a lot of, there was a lot going on yeah in the news and in media as well as in our personal lives and yeah. they were all telling pretty drastically different stories Looking back on my childhood, yes, it should have been very obvious to anyone, <laughs> including myself. <laughs> yeah. But I was, I was like involved with religion and things too, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. just so much shame there. Mm. So I didn't, I didn't come out or whatever till I was like nineteen. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, I was a late, I don't know, I was a late bloomer. I didn't have to think or worry about that stuff because mm -hmm. I buried it. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, fair. That's fair. I mean, I didn't, I didn't come out until I was 18, until I was leaving. Okay. Was, so I was doing all this stuff behind closed doors or just living my life. I basically had the mentality of like, all right, I can manage this and I'll keep my head down. And then when I graduate and go to college, I can huh. figure out what the heck I'm actually doing. Yeah. That was like, I, I remember kind of thinking that I could control it in that way, uh, which is a very me thing to believe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so your parents or your um, mom or... Yeah, so I, I came out to my family when I was leaving for college at my sister's um, request because she oh, said... I thought you were going to say at my sister's wedding or something. No, no, no. I'm not that selfish. Just come on now. Ain't going to make that day about me. Um, but no, she she caught me in a series of very ill-devised lies where I was like sneaking out to meet with the woman I was dating at the time. At like 18? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And before I was leaving for college, it was like that summer. Yeah. Saying I was going to be in places that I wasn't. And she just like caught me all the stuff because I'm not good at doing <laughs> that. And she confronted me about it. And when I told her what was up, she asked me very kindly. She said, you need to tell mom and dad because if you leave and you don't tell us, like, we're not going to see you again. It's basically how, like, she, she just knew that if... Yeah if I didn't try to build that bridge before I left, that that was probably gonna break our family, which I think she was right. Mm. Um, so had that conversation and 
the time was very careful about my wording and just said I'm dating a woman. I didn't like say what I was. Right. Just that, you know, so all all the all those like typical tricks and yeah. stuff. But um, I mean, that went well. I was accepted um, at that time, and then it's been a series of evolutions since then. You know, yeah. it hasn't always been easy by any means. But again, very lucky. I didn't. I was not. Um, abandoned by my family I wasn't kicked out of the house there wasn't violence that was involved um, it's been a hard road for sure but it's like my parents are still there and they're willing to navigate it with me so nice yeah that's good yeah I know that is not a common tale Write your book salt of us yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that thing um love it thank you bought it immediately after i heard you read <laughs> uh, how would you describe it oh man <laughs> um how would i describe this book it is a lot of things it is a lot of things and i thought was... it was one thing at first <laughs> what and did then you, i was wait, like wait oh, no i'm so interested what did you think it was well like I told, like I said, I was about three poems in mm-hmm. before I felt like my body returned to some former self that could actually experience desire again. Because mm-hmm. um, I have a history of trauma, so I've definitely disconnected from my body. Absolutely. A lot of your poems are about desire and mm-hmm. sex and mm-hmm. love and the body. Mm-hmm. So that's what I. That's where I thought we were going <laughs> with the whole thing. Yeah, and then, you know, it became socio political, which is still about desire and the body and love. But mm-hmm. I definitely thought we were going down like a full romantic route, right? Uh, in the book. And yeah. It, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, that's. I say it's a lot of things because that was I was super intentional about that because I feel like. Um, with a lot of poetry collections, I feel like we hear about the book or the project, mm-hmm. you know, in, in writing scenes or writing communities when people are talking about what they're working on. It's like the project or the book and it's and it's usually pretty myopic in its scope or it's yes. like this one thing that you're yeah. in con- that you are in obsessive conversation with. Yeah. Which I think is obviously incredibly valid mode of creation and a way to engage with your craft um, and can produce really incredible work. Oh, um, but this was better. And so, <laughs> I'm telling all you, right, thank like, you. I'm serious. And, like, and so naturally, you know, if I see that that's what's happening, me being me, I'm like, all right. So how can <laughs> how can we like push those boundaries and and mess that up in a way because we are we're we're not like that as people, right? And I feel like when we have those, we try to be too, right? Yeah, which is I think really problematic. You know, when yes. we try to be so singular and we try to put out this image of like. I'm doing this one thing and only this one thing. And this is the one conversation that's very curated and very clean. Um, I think, I I mean, we have to get dirty with it. I think we have to mess it up. Get dirty with it. Yeah. So maybe maybe that's what Salt of Us is, is like my gesture towards like, let's just get dirty with it, y'all. Like there's more stuff going on. And 
um, elements of intersectionality and also, you know, personal subjectivity, the whole thing. Um, I just think it needs to be, it's, it doesn't need to be more complicated, but it is more complicated, so that's how it should be articulated. I think it does need to be. <laughs> I mean, okay. I uh, just finished, like, the first solid draft of a memoir manuscript, and I, all throughout my program, tried to make it singular. Yeah. It's not. <laughs> like, uh, like three-fourths yeah. of the way through my program, it was like, fuck this. Like, it's not yeah. a singular story. Mm-hmm. And I played with the structure and form around that Mm -hmm. and the content but I feel like that's one of the reasons I love this collection so much is it's I don't know the word I it feels whole oh damn thank you thank you (laughs) so anyway how would you describe your book (laughs) yeah yeah um I mean messy for sure um I that that just keeps coming back to me like it's there's a lot of hours of work in that book. It's by no means thrown together, but it is complicated and it is, it's a lot going on. It, um, the, the phrase that I used in the, in the Westward feature I was in, I talked about it as a flitch anthem, which I like also really love and a Southern blessing yeah. and a rebuttal. It's, it's like yeah, all of these different is. things. It's a prayer. Um, um, it's a ritual. It's an elegy for many people. Uh, <laughs> I wish you could have been a fly on the wall when I was reading it. Yeah, because I just sat at my desk. I was like, "I'm doing this in one shot." Like, oh, dang, you went yeah, in. Yes. All right. All and right. I'm like, yeah, hitting things and <laughs> like, mm-hmm. fuck, or tearing up, which mm-hmm. I don't generally do unless I'm, you know, watching someone read or talking about my own shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like losing my breath. Mm-hmm. Maybe oh. that, I mean, that's another thing. It's in the body, right? I mean, it's, like, there's that in the, in the, in the body. That's, that's super important. Because yeah, it is a lot about body. Like, I feel like that's a huge point of intersection, right? We're talking about desire and longing and eros and also about the political aspect of it and the resistance movements. It's like, that is about bodies. Like, it is about, <laughs> ha- like, having a physical body in a space and what that means and what people are going to write upon that and what people are going to tell you you can or can't do with that. Yeah. Um, I think that's a, that's a lot of what I, I wrestle with. Yeah. That makes me think of your poem with the line, something about a, a, a white chest being bulletproof. Yeah. Yeah. Privileged tongue. Yeah. Yeah. Where is it? <laughs> yeah, where, where trying is to it? find it where is the thing it uh, spreads across a few different pages I feel like it's towards the back-ish me maybe. too because uh, it's right before conflict of interest yeah yeah. man sequencing a book is a whole thing yeah let's talk about that <laughs> I, I, I'm always so into that like I got a lot of brilliant fucking ideas from Stephen Dunn on that topic that I, like I've never in a million years would have thought oh man to think about it like that mm-hmm. so yeah how the fuck Excuse <laughs> my French. How, how'd we do this <laughs> how'd you decide Cause... many many times i think there were like three or four different iterations of sequencing these poems and how we wanted to do it so like i went through and who's we uh me sarah rodriguez and uh jonah fine so sarah right. rodriguez who runs punch drunk press and then right. jonah fine who's the book designer yes um i kind of involved i i would do i would resequence it and then i would run through it with them and kind of say like what's landing what's not landing what are the ideas that y'all have um 
So, what? I found it. Okay. Sorry. All right. <laughs> That's my sticky note. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> exclamation, exclamation point. point. <laughs> um, but, but sequencing for me has always been, like, very physical. I print out everything, and then I put it on the floor, and then I, like, move it around in piles and just figure <laughs> out visually how things look. Um, there was... Like one one round we did talking about like does the last line of this piece have a conversation with the first line of the next piece? What would that look like if that's how we organized it? What would it look like if we tried to organize it thematically? Yeah. And uh, when we blocked it off like that, that felt way too clean to me. I was like, yeah. no, like I don't want someone to just be able to go to like the quote unquote eros portion of the book, right? You know, because that's not again this messy aspect. Yeah. Um. So actually, when we when I when I put it into like those piles of like all right these are the erotic poems and these are the political poems and these are the witchy poems you know like tried to yeah classify it like that I I then I took all those piles and then I just like kind of shuffled the deck and made sure that there were even amounts of each conversation kind of throughout is what I ended up doing mm-hmm. so I went through all of these very organized systems and then messed up the organized system and then it messed with me yeah too because it's yeah, it goes back and forth from between all those themes. Mm-hmm. It's like a goddamn roller coaster. <laughs> in hopefully, a good way. I was going to say, in a good way. Yes, way. Hopefully of course. Didn't, like, but it was like, you. damn, yeah. girl. Like, <laughs> what are you doing to me? I told well, that, you. I was like, you're killing well, me. Well, that's how you organize a good. Re- that's actually the thing of it is, you know, I thought a lot about how I organize a set when I'm doing a reading. Mm. Is how I wa- and, and when I organize a set when I'm doing a reading, is I don't. The whole point is I don't want people to have an out necessarily. Like I, I want there to be space where you can take care of yourself, but I don't want to give you a reason to not listen to me or I don't want to give you an excuse to like not recognize that all of these things are connected and that we're implicated in what I'm talking about. And so that's, I use kind of that strategy and how I did the book too, because it's, it worked. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. Glad to hear it. This bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Me or the book? Who's the bitch, Chris? You. (laughs) Um, Oh, no. No, I love it. Uh, Okay. Did you want to talk about the white chest bulletproof thing? Yeah. I was wondering, of course, if you would read it. Okay. Whole thing? Of course. It's not that long. Yeah. No, no, no. I can can do that. (laughs) Let, first talk about, you know, what is it about? All right, so Privileged Tongue. Um, this piece was written after I went to a gathering in Boulder, which is an incredibly white city. Um, I think the demographics are still at 88% white. Um, but went to a gathering at, I think it was a Unitarian church um, during the Ferguson riots. Yeah. I went to that community meeting because I wanted to be in a space that wasn't just my apartment. I wanted to know what people were talking about. I wanted to know what was going on. And um, sat in that room in the sanctuary. So sat in the sanctuary in a pew, listening to everyone talking. And um, it very quickly devolved into a room of mostly white people talking about their privilege in a way that made it sound like a burden. And then they utilized that logic to excuse apathy right of you know 
I don't know what to do, so I can't do anything, mm. or anything that I would do wouldn't ch- this like right. why speak of not to change the world type yeah, thing was very that. present in that room of like, well, I can I'm only one person, so what can I do? So I'm not going to do anything, and then talking about all of the whoops, talking about all of the feelings of white guilt and what basically using the public space to process it was like a fucking white privilege orgy yeah uh, circle jerk is circle the term jerk. that I've used yes. quite often, um, which put rage in my bones. And so I end up actually pacing in the back like I was sitting for a while. I mean, I'm just <laughs> rage, pacing. Egg, rage pacing, which is, which is a thing for me <laughs> in the back of the sanctuary. And I, um, I'm losing my shit and I, I raise my hand for the microphone and the moderator is walking mm. down. It's like, it seems very cinematic to me. Yeah. I'm like pacing and then the microphone is walking down the center <laughs> aisle towards me and then I just am like filled somebody and I can't wait for it and so I just bellow. <laughs> I just bellow into the sanctuary um, about how, you know, like I, I feel like as a white body, I know I can be in the street right now and not get shot. And so that's where my body has to be. And that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. And I was like, I'm going to walk from this church to uh, the Capitol right now or the state house or whatever the heck we have in Boulder, whatever that yeah. one yeah. government building yeah. we have is. I was like, I'm going to walk down that direction if anyone wants to come with me. I just like yelled that into the sanctuary. And that that was, I think, like the first march that we had in Boulder was like people followed me out and we like did Fuck the thing, yeah. which was really amazing. But also it was like that that moment where I was like, what are these people talking about? And like, what is my responsibility yeah. as a white body? And what does this feel like? And uh, Privileged Tongue is a piece that came out of that experience. Privileged Tongue Part 1 The invulnerability of a white body Taken to the streets Hands up as if challenged Chanting, breathing steam No one violates this body in public space Break a wall to make space for their words Don't claim more space than your body requires Learn the size of yourself There are those who will never hear you, and that is no reason to stop. If they cut off your tongue, and they will, use your hands. If they cut off your hands, keep walking. If they take your legs, use your breath. If they take your breath, do not go quietly. There are infinite ways to make a world with sound, or with structure, or with haunting. You have to remain the thing that is unsellable, untamable. Sharing a body is not easy, but that is the truth of it. A body is the body, is our body, is this body. This body is immediate and unexcused. This body is implicated and inevitable. Press your cheek to the frozen brick and recognize why a white chest is bulletproof. Count the seconds and roll that stone from your gut into your heart. Push the stone to your tongue and taste for ore. 
in the mouth. What do you make of it? What do you make of the exit wound? What do you make of the exoneration? What do you make of the excuse? thought i don't know how to articulate this yet it's gonna sound weird let's do it but i never thought of it in terms of i have i have a white body yep yeah that's different absolutely. and helpful <laughs> like, absolutely and that's uh that's part of why i bring up whiteness and race so much in this book is because specifically living in boulder is recognizing how no one talks about whiteness, which means that pretty much all of our conversations are racist. Right. <laughs> because if we're not talking about whiteness, then the assumption is just like everything that's normal is white. And so I, I, have, I have this thing in specifically with contemplative community, conscious community, where uh, the assumption in those spaces is that everyone is equal because we're the same the color blindness yeah, yeah i don't see color yeah. all, which is also in the book you know how many times that comes up which is huge cultural erasure huge oh. act of violence yeah it is steamy in this room <laughs> sorry um, it's all right but like it's, it's a huge act of of cultural violence to do that so for me it's much more of like we are all equal because we are inherently different and so we have to lay out all of those different pieces of ourselves and know what we are carrying into a room in order to start having a conversation and be able to show up for each other so like for me, I walk into a room and I have a white body, which means that I am automatically doing violence to that space for some people. And that has nothing to do with any of my personal choices or politics or whatever. Right. But that is something that is like a physical reality. Yeah. That I mean, we have to recognize. Yeah. I'm not saying, I'm not saying I haven't thought about my whiteness, but I've always mm -hmm. thought about it in terms of. I'm a white person rather right. than I have a white body. It just conceptual some... rather than like the physicality. Yeah. 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 It changed something for me when I read that, that I still can't quite articulate, but mm -hmm. I like it. <laughs> there, there's something about that too, right? Is like the main discourse is about whiteness and we don't hear about white bodies. Right. Right. Like, like that. It's very, but we do hear about black bodies, don't we? Yes. And so like the, there's, a weird, potentially like objectification there in terms of. Oh fuck yeah! That's, I haven't thought about that breakdown before either, and yeah. I'm now very excited to think about that and write some more into that space because I think you're right that that conversation is very much it's concept the, the like whiteness thing or the white people thing, yes. and we don't talk about the fact that like we also are skin and blood and bone and how are we walking physically in the world? Yeah, <laughs> it's much more boots to the ground when you think about it that way. Yeah, exactly. Where to go? <laughs> Diagnosis of a lethal anatomy. <laughs> lethal it, it's lethal anomaly. Anomaly. Sorry. By the way, <laughs> oh, which man. is and the reason it's that title is because that's a a reason why you can have an abortion. I've been reading that yeah. as anatomy since 
that night I saw you read. Mm. And whole new world. Yeah. Uh, That's all right. Sometimes that happens. Well, I thought of it through the lens of I guess I just did that the idea that the female anatomy mm-hmm. is. I, I mean, valid. I'm really interested in misreadings because I think a lot of times it like brings out a different truth that's, that's also inherent there. So that's that's 200 percent what's happening in that piece too. So you yeah. ain't wrong. All right. <laughs> so so yeah. Um, what's it about? <laughs> this particular poem. Uh, this poem is about abortion and abortion rights and yeah. that whole process. Um, it's a it's part of a series of three that's in the book that mm-hmm. was a part of my creative thesis that I. Um, I did kind of documentary poetics um, around what I called body access procedures. So abortion is one of them. Mm -hmm. You know, all of these ways that uh, the medical and legal systems tries to drive a wedge between us and our own bodies, um, which blows my mind consistently. But um, so this piece is specifically about, about abortion. Yeah. Probably the one that made me think that I needed to let you borrow the six Sioux and... Mm-hmm. Ira Garay books because that those lines teach a girl her worth teach her that her pleasure does not cause the world's pain teach her the space between her legs is not a wound it was mm-hmm. another exclamation point sticky note kind of place yeah like, <laughs> yeah but I got to hear you read that mm-hmm. and it was very powerful but you also talked about the male body mm-hmm. talk about that well I mean it I think we've been seeing a little bit more of this, which is nice, but, you know, the whole conversation about women's rights, um, abortion rights in general, and it's very much focused on the women's side of the story, and we don't talk as much about the men's side of that story and why this is happening and why there are abusive situations and why women feel like they can't have abortions and all of these situations and the male voice being so prevalent and making all of these legal choices about our bodies. Um, and we don't talk about what is the male side of that story? Why, why is that violence happening? And I think we're starting to see more things around accountability and the mm-hmm. fact that like actually everyone has to be a part of this conversation mm-hmm. in order for us to change anything. Um, and so I, I, I mean, men show up in this poem in a few different ways. They show up as headlines, um, as the lawmakers that are, yeah. that are perpetuating yep. these problems. Oh, it, Barbieri. Yes. It gets my fucking rage to come up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to start rage pacing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Highly recommend. 10 out of 10 recommend. Rage pacing to get it out of your body. It's great, great practice. Um, so so there's a male voice there, but then there's also, um, you know, when I talk about how our bodies are uh, raging and unlawful, um, like also talking about like male bodies have power and male bodies can also do good healing work right. if they step into that. Like that's, that's kind of, that one line is like my nod towards that of yeah. like, there also are power. models in which like these relationships could be really fantastic or like men could stand, could step up as advocates to help break these systems. Um, so that <sighs> there's like a moment of grace there and optimism. And then there also is, you know, keeping people accountable. Yeah. So I think it should, men show up in those two ways in that piece. Will you talk a little bit about the kind of craft decision to include the pieces of, uh, it's law text, right? 
Yep. So or, throughout um, in in the back, there's the footnotes of like all the documents that right. were used. So for um, diagnosis of a lethal anomaly, for that one specifically, we've got um, some legal documents. We have um, tweets from reporters during Senate hearings. Yeah. Um, we have headlines of stories about those things. We have tr- um, some transcriptions of interviews or lawmaking procedures. We also have, um, language taken straight from, um, Planned Parenthood intake forms right. and also some things from like medical consent procedure forms. So you can, so there's like some medical language in there too. Yeah. Um, but the one, the, the one that I still, ooh, whenever I read it, I start shaking a little bit, is that line about dominant decision maker. Hmm. Where it's a multiple choice question, Chris, on an intake form for who is the dominant decision maker? Yourself, parents, husband, boyfriend, or other. Yes. Yikes. And, it, and so that was, that is lifted directly from a form. At, at a Planned Parenthood for intake. So, so it's like in the very structures. Exactly. Yeah. So what, the, in terms of your question of like why choose these particular documents, it's really interesting to me that we engage with legal documents yeah. and medical documents as objective, right? We like look at these forms yeah. and these pieces of language and just assume they're speaking from this objective yeah. place and they are inherently <laughs> exactly. flawed right. and they are inherently biased. Like the fact that that is a multiple choice question, are you kidding me? And you're having a conversation with it. Yes. It is always yourself. Mm-hmm. So I, so I wanted to bring, so I wanted to bring those forms out because we yeah. don't get to, because ha- normally when we're engaging with this language, we're sitting silently in a waiting room with a yeah. pen and our only quote unquote conversation with these is to mark the yes or to, to pick the option. Right. Like we can't reframe the question. Right. And so I wanted to, maybe liberate, we should. Right. I wanted to liberate those documents a little bit and reframe the question yeah. and, and change what we're dealing with. Tragically, that's where we took coffee break. And when we came back to continue our conversation, I proceeded to apparently not continue recording another hour and a half of material. So I do apologize to listeners, and mostly I would like to cry myself to sleep tonight. But this whole do-it-yourself podcast thing definitely comes with a learning curve. I do thank you very much again for tuning in. And please purchase Ellie's collection, Salt of Us. You can get it online at shop.mutinyinfocafe.com or on Punch Drunk Press's Etsy website. And we'll see you next time.